back to the Wentworth CM Club podcast. This is your host, Chase K. Cook, along with co-hosts Zach and Adam. And today we have Gretchen Barron. So Gretchen, please tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, what you do in the FM world and all that great stuff. <laughs> sure. So I am a 1996 graduate of Wentworth, which is probably before any of you guys were born, um, but they probably haven't updated the dorm since then. So it's the same experience. Um, <laughs> I was an interior design major at Wentworth. And after doing a couple of co-ops, I was introduced to facilities management and the world of contract furniture, uh, which was you know systems furniture, cubicles, things like that. So most of the jobs that I had when I first got out of school were in the furniture world and sort of a hybrid between my interior design background and my facilities management background. So then I, as things sort of evolved, I moved more into the world of owner's project management, which is where I've spent the bulk of my career. So an OPM is hired by a client to represent their interests in a project. So it can be a move project, a relocation project or a construction project, a development project, whatever it is. A lot of companies don't have anyone who does facilities full-time, so they need the expertise of someone who has a facilities or construction background. So the bulk of my career was spent doing that. Now I'm actually on the owner's side. So I work for the Massachusetts Medical Society. We publish the New England Journal of Medicine, and we have about 300,000 square feet in the greater Boston area. So managing that portfolio is my responsibility, among a bunch of other stuff um, besides real estate and facilities. We have a cafeteria, we have a conference center, um, I handle business travel, copy machines, all kinds of weird stuff. Um, facilities tends to be a catch-all for all of those things. So I've been with the society for nine years, um, and we've had some significant capital projects. We've also done some real estate projects. Um, we lease space in Boston, we own space in Waltham. Um, so I kind of keep it all running. I'm like a juggler. I just keep it all going. All the balls are in the air at the same time. So that doesn't ever get uh, like stressful or overwhelming at all for you? It can be completely stressful. I don't know if I'd call it overwhelming. I tend to be a person that thrives from high energy situations. I think people who go into facilities management are good under pressure generally, which is something that I definitely, uh, feel I excel at. Uh, so whether it's a prolonged power outage or it's an emergency situation or a safety situation, um, you, know, you just sort of have to jump right in there and, and figure out what to do and then figure out the solution to the problem. Did you deal with any power outages today with all the wind that we had? I was fortunate today we did not have any outages. Um, our main building is on generator power um, and we have, we've had to work with our utility provider actually to get a backup line because we used to have a lot of power outages. Um, but we were able to secure a backup line. So we had far fewer now. So that's interesting because um, later this week we're doing a um, podcast or I'm doing a one with uh, Procore. And that whole backup line thing is something I was hoping to talk about them with. So you actually have two separate feeds coming in from two separate places so if one goes down it basically fails over to the other yes exactly so when our office park was built two separate feeds were brought in from two different substations in waltham one was an overland line so it was on telephone poles and the other was an underground line and then on our property is a transfer switch that national grid maintains they own it they maintain it we experienced an issue where the transfer switch was failing. And so we would get stuck in what they called the neutral position. So the, the switch was supposed to go from the A line 
when the A line went down, the switch switches over to the B line and our building wasn't being switched over. This went on for probably two and a half years. So every time there was a windstorm or a snowstorm or there was a car accident, our building would lose power. Uh, during Hurricane Sandy, we lost power for five days, which as you can imagine, has a significant impact on our ability to do business. So we had to work with the utility company to get that switch replaced. And it was a lot of hard work working. We had to bring in lawyers and work with the utility company to try and force them to switch out the switch because we don't own the switch. We can't maintain it. You know, we can't just bring in an electrician to, to fix that switch. It belongs to the utility company. So it was a lot of negotiation. It was a lot of pushing threats of lawsuits, things like that, um, to get them to switch. And then when they did it, our entire building had to lose power completely for 14 hours. So that's a big hit to your infrastructure when you have no power in the building for 14 hours. That's crazy. I could imagine that. I, I've done some work with National Grid before with, um, I worked for a company and we had to do some excavation because um, one of their sewer lines at one of their substations was just totally, um, it had been hit by uh, poor backfilling and tree roots and the whole thing had to be replaced. And it was, it was a lot of work to try and work through, you know, their internal system. And, you know, to be fair, it was a lot of money to, you know, excavate hundreds of feet to the street, but um, that's pretty interesting. And what I was talking about, what I was hoping to talk with Procore is they have a similar system only with their internet. I was curious, do you have that with your internet too? So they actually have two separate feeds. So, you know, if a car accident hits the pole and brings the pole down that they have both power and internet. So we do, I don't handle IT. We have an IT department, but we do have redundancy. And we also, um, and I'm not an IT person, but we have the ability to sort of flip a switch. And if Waltham is down, all of our stuff feeds through our Boston office and vice versa. If Boston goes down, everything feeds through Waltham. So we do have that level of redundancy for our internet connections. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and definitely necessary when power and internet are the two main things you need to make money. So yeah. do what you do. <laughs> like day to day, it sounds like you have a, a whole bunch of places you could go, a whole bunch of things that could go wrong. So what, what's in general, like what's your day to day looking like? So in an organization like mine, we have about 400 employees. Someone in my role tends to wear a lot of hats. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, I'm responsible for the real estate, the facilities, the cafeteria, janitorial security, um, but also things like business travel. So the bulk of my day is spent um, helping our internal customers. It could be the finance department is looking for figures on our operating expenses or square footage. They want to charge back the departments for their square footage. So I could be working with them. I might get a call from HR that someone needs an ergonomic evaluation because um, they're having pain and discomfort and they can't do their job. Or we might have um, a security issue. Someone shows up that shouldn't be coming up. So most of my day is sort of spent either physically going to different places and meeting with people or just doing, you know, responding to different requests and trying to keep people informed and all of our operations up and running. That's why I'm the director of corporate operations. <laughs> that's uh, that's good to hear because I know both Zach and I are uh, in facility management, the concentration. And uh, what one of the things that appealed to me was that like exactly the doing something different every day or, or being like, I mean, as stressful as it may seem or sound like being that person who wears all the hats, it just kind of, it almost seems fun to me. It keeps it fresh. 
No two days are the same. Um, you know, today I was focused a little bit on, uh, we have some real estate transactions that we're going to be, we're analyzing them now to see if we're going to renew those leases. So I've been working on that. At the same time, we're trying to figure out what our reopening strategy will be. And there's a lot that goes into that. How are we going to handle conference rooms? How are we going to handle AV? Because we don't really have conference rooms that are set up for Zooming the way that we've all become accustomed to Zooming. So we're trying to figure that out. Meanwhile, we're also talking about, you know, if we're going to have visitors to the building, do they have to sign in? Do they have, you know, a, a protocol? Do they have to be vaccinated? Do our employees have to be vaccinated? How are we going to, you know, some of our employees take the tea? Is that going to be safe for them to do? If not, how are we going to arrange parking for them? So that's all the weird, wacky stuff that I deal with on a regular basis. Yeah, that was a kind of perfect segue into all like the COVID life. Like, I can't even imagine how much it's changed for, for you. Like, so uh, from what, what are like some of the big differences, like, and how are you adapting to the COVID life at work? So, we were a company that already offered flexibility. So many of our employees were able to work from home maybe one day a week and our, our technology infrastructure was set up for people to work from home one day a week maybe. About a year ago, we started having conversations about this thing called COVID and what it might mean for us. And as the New England Journal of Medicine, we're obviously on the forefront of getting all of that medical knowledge. So our doctors were already sort of raising the red flag saying, oh, this is really bad. This is going to hit us hard. And the second week of March, we started saying, okay, we need to come up with a plan that if everyone had to work from home for two weeks, would we be able to do it? And we were supposed to have a trial day on March 17th, where everyone would try working from home. And on March 16th, we announced that everyone was going to go home and work from home for two weeks. So in the meantime, we had a cafeteria that had fully loaded walk-in coolers. We had conference center business booked. We had all kinds of meetings scheduled. And so the first couple of weeks were just absolute like, okay, we're just, this is only going to last another couple of weeks. We just have to keep the bandaid on. And then as things started stretching out, we started to develop formal, you know, groups where we meet and talk about a reopening strategy, or we had to talk about what are we gonna do with the food that's in the walk-in cooler? So we partnered with a local human services agency that runs a soup kitchen. So we donated a lot of our food um, that wasn't going to be, you know, the chicken fingers can only last so long in the freezer. So knowing what their expiration date was, we were able to make some significant donations to the Middlesex Human Services Agency. And then they can provide that food in our community to people who need it right now, because so many people are out of work. So it's been a lot of that sort of like, as we go down the road and we move from two weeks to a month to, okay, we're going to come back in June. Then it was, we're going to come back in September. And then in September, we announced that we would come back in January. And in January, we said, okay, we're going to come back in June. Now we're starting to talk about is June realistic? <laughs> I don't know yet. <laughs> so, so you're still like, you guys are all like, everybody's still working from home and everything? Or so is our, it, are people starting to like swing back into in-person as well as home? Our, so our print facilities, which are deemed an essential function, have been operating since the beginning. So the folks who work in our print shops have been working the entire time. We have a small crew of essential services staff that need to be in the office building um, for you know, their job task requires them to be there. For instance, um, our facilities team has been on site this entire time. So they have to be there because we might have a leak or there's maintenance to be done. There's preventative maintenance vendors coming in. So those folks have been there the whole time as well as some of our finance folks or customer service folks. So we've been maintaining the building um, 
and I think we will, you know, keep operating this way, certainly until the vaccine is widely available, depending when that is. So I think starting in June, we might start to see our workforce coming back in, but we're also working to survey our workforce and survey our managers to understand what aspects of this do people like, who wants to remain working from home, who's able to continue working from home, and who really would benefit from being back in the office, and that will influence our real estate strategy. So we need to determine how much space we need to retain for our own needs. And then if we have space in our building that we own, can we lease that out to a third party? Should we make any changes to the leased facilities that we have? So there's lots of questions to be answered. I don't know if those answers will be yet. I don't have a crystal ball, but it's something that we work on every day. Yeah, with COVID going on, everyone's just navigating new normals. And, you know, initially we're like, oh, this is just, you know, a couple month thing in the summer will be like all better. I'm Mm -hmm. sure the majority of us were like that. And now it's just like, this feels so normal. Like when I see pictures of myself without a mask, I'm like, who is that? And like something interesting about the vaccine, even though there's a lot of hope for that to help remediate, you know, the effects of COVID-19, Um, those people who are vaccinated can still carry the virus like in their nasal passages or on their clothes or from touching a surface. So those people who are vaccinated still need to, you know, be home and responsible and wear a mask. So it's just interesting, like how the hope of the vaccine just like contradicts the purpose. (laughs) And for one of the factors for us is that we have staff who either have children who are home because schools aren't in person, or they might have elderly or immunocompromised family members. So even if they've been vaccinated, you know, we still have to be mindful that they might not be able to sit in an auditorium with 150 other people because it poses a risk to the people that are around them. So it's definitely um, challenging. Many of our physician members have already received their vaccine, so they're anxious to come back and start using the building again. Uh, And it's, but our staff hasn't been vaccinated for the most part. So it's, sort of trying to figure out that balance of when it's safe to bring people back. Did you find when you started sending people home, did you have a lot of issues with technology and people um, having to work from home and they might not have the best setup as far as computers and everything like that, or people that might have not had, I know you mentioned um, ergonomics, maybe people that didn't have like a, you know, a, a dedicated home office that they could comfortably and safely work in for you know, long periods of time. When we first went home, as I mentioned, we originally thought that we were going home for two weeks and we thought we'd have a little more time to test out our network. So our networking teams were scrambling and they did an amazing job of adding capacity to our networks and allowing people to dial in remotely. And we didn't have any way to test the system before it went live. And for the most part, it went really well. Um, as, as an end user, I thought it was great. I could pretty much get in anytime I needed to get in on the network. Um, as far as, you know, I know for, I'll speak for myself, you know, the first couple of weeks I was working in the living room or I was working in the dining room and my kids were home. They didn't have any school because schools had been canceled. And we were just trying to navigate. My husband had set up a, he's an architect. He had set up a table in the basement that he was working at. And so I was, I didn't really have like a permanent location and I, that really continued on for quite some time. And and it wasn't until the end of the summer that I found a dedicated workspace um, for myself down in the basement where I could close the door and and work. And it has helped my productivity immensely because I have a dedicated space, but I've worked with a number of my coworkers to help them figure out our company was generous enough to give us a stipend 
And so we were able to purchase, if you needed an extra monitor, you needed a new desk or something, you could do that. Um, so a number of my coworkers asked for help picking a chair. And so I have like a little cheat sheet that I send them. These are the tips of things to look for in your, if you're gonna buy a chair on Wayfair, or Amazon or Staples, look for these features. Like it's not about whether it's leather or it has big padded arms, make sure the height is correct. Make sure it's, you know, the back goes up and down, things like that. So I've worked with a number of our um, internal folks to help them. We've done virtual um, ergonomic valuations over Zoom where they literally have their iPhone or FaceTiming or something and they're showing me and they're sitting at their kitchen table and they're trying to add, you know, my shoulder hurts and I, I don't know what to do. And so, you know, I'll try and work with them and say, okay, stick a book under your monitor. Can you put a pillow on your chair? <laughs> you know, trying to help people get more comfortable in their home workspace. So it's definitely been an adjustment. It's crazy to see how everyone's workspace has evolved. Like since the start of COVID, I've had a laptop stand because, you know, I was like straining my neck looking down. And like something interesting for me is that I'm from California and I went out, you know, Wentworth and Boston, obviously. So home felt like a place to relax and school wasn't going on. So the productivity, like even now it's, you know, like still quite an adjustment, but I've like gotten my desk and laptop stand and like just trying to make it an enjoyable place to learn. But it's sometimes it's kind of hard when it's in my bedroom because it's like supposed to be something relaxing. I was always doing work in the library or not in my room. So it, it just feels crazy weird. <laughs> I definitely think it helps if you can have, I too was sort of bouncing around. At one point I bought a lap desk and I was sitting in the living room with like, like a laptop on a lap desk, but I have two kids. I have a 11 year old and a 14 year old. And so one of them was sitting at the kitchen table doing work. The other one's asking me questions all day long. And so it really was not my most productive time period. So when I was able to find this little space, I, I set up a folding table in a little corner and in, in a closet in the basement. It's actually really helped me because I have two monitors. I'm able to have my regular keyboard. And it's, it, I think if any, my advice to everyone who's working from home is if you can do that and set up some kind of a space that's, and, and to your point about relaxing, my office space here in the basement, you know, I have a bulletin board in front of me. I have my monitors. It, it really feels like a workspace. It's a dedicated, and when I go upstairs at night, six o'clock, I turn off my computer and go upstairs. I'm able to make that definition between work and home, which I think for all of us right now is really important to be able to turn these things off and not be on 24 seven. I think anyone that's ever used two monitors will tell you that it's absolutely life-changing. And for anyone listening that may be studying or working from home, when the pandemic started, I bought a second monitor, the exact same one as my first one, so they match up nicely. It's amazing. You have so much more space. I feel like I'm so much more productive. And you know, if anyone's listening and is in uh, construction management and has the razor blade, you can run uh, two monitors. Uh, you can actually run three monitors off of the blade laptop, which is what I do. So it's nice to be able to come plop the laptop on the table, plug in the monitors and go. But then I can also just unplug it quickly and, you know, go somewhere, go to school or wherever. So the two monitor thing is you know, amazing. I could never go back to just one. And when I'm at school with my, just my laptop, I'm, I feel like I'm less productive because I only have one. So. That's funny. Yeah. Totally. And it's, it's funny that you say that Zach, because one of the things that we are contemplating in our return to work is, 
if folks are going, a lot of folks say they want to work from home a couple of days a week in the office a couple of days a week. So do you replicate your setup in both places? So at work, you have two monitors, a keyboard and a mouse, and at home, you have two monitors, a keyboard and a mouse. And from an economic standpoint for the company, that can be challenging because if we're subsidizing four monitors instead of two, it takes away some of the value that we get from folks working at home. So that's a little bit, you know, we, we generally are saving money um, on our utilities and things like that in the office space by not having as many staff in. But on the flip side, if everyone starts coming in two days a week and you know, what is the productivity level when you come in and you don't have your two monitors or you don't have your mouse and your keyboard or something like that, so. Yeah, and one thing, um... When I was doing an internship over the summer, I had two monitors and a laptop, um, you know, and sometimes in the office, I'd go into a conference room or somewhere else when we'd have meetings. And at one point, someone said to me, wow, they gave you a laptop. You're really lucky. And I thought to myself, I mean, I guess, but how I can't really work without the laptop. I mean, <laughs> they gave me the laptop so I can work, you know, what they're paying me to do. But I think, you know, I don't know what your office might look like or what my office looked like before I worked there for the internship. But um, the two monitor thing is nice because then you can take the laptop to the meeting and actually be productive in the conference room rather than just, you know, sitting there taking notes or whatever. So I, th I think it's great, but they're definitely expensive uh, by tons of them. And I think at my organization, depending on your job, you may have had a desktop computer, or you might've had a laptop. So. It, certainly, you know, for an intern, we would have probably had you on a desktop because you'd be working in the office all the time. And so why spend the money was the thinking at the time that has changed. That's been one of the challenges, you know, our organization has stepped up and provided everyone, I think at this point, a laptop um, who's working remotely because it's just so much more productive. But it's interesting over the years, I've pretty much had a laptop my entire career because I've been an OPM, which means I'm going to job sites and I'm going to client sites. And so I need the laptop in order to be functional because I'm not usually working in the same place all the time. But um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of jobs that didn't have that before. So to kind of swing it back into like your job and what you do, I know that Wentworth offers both a facility management and a real estate development uh, uh, track to the construction management uh, degree so could you, could you like talk about like a little bit of both because I know that uh we haven't had too many chances to talk to people in the real estate world uh so I'm sure that would be very interesting to some people listening as well as well for selfish reasons I like the facility management talk too but yeah I would say when I started in the role that I have now I didn't have any real estate experience. So I had always been on the construction management side, the move management side, uh, but obviously real estate is part of my current job. So I work with a terrific team of lawyers and brokers and other real estate experts who have guided me through the process. And now I consider myself adept at negotiating leases. Uh, we lease space out to others at our headquarters and we also lease space from other organizations. So we have um, over the years had renewals and we've worked with brokers to find new space and lease our space out. So it's an amazing group of people that I work with. Um, and on the real estate side, I think you need that team of people that you really trust and you trust their judgment. Um, the broker that we've primarily worked with is, he's fantastic and he he's with JLL and I trust his judgment. You know, if he says this, 
clause or this provision isn't favorable to you, then we'll push back. And, and he's really guided us well so that as a landlord, we're protected and we're earning the most amount of money from our assets. And as a tenant, we're getting the most value for our buck on the spaces that we lease. So he's he's a great advice. He's an advisor to me and um, he's I can reach out to him for even for when I'm doing a renewal that he's not involved with and he's not shy about telling me, yeah, yeah, that's fair. No, that's not fair. Um, and just keeping me apprised of where the industry is right now. So there's a lot of space on the market in the suburban Boston area right now. Um, obviously a lot of companies are shedding space. We have space that's potentially gonna be leased out um, or could be leased out. Not sure yet what we're gonna do with it, but it's helpful for him to keep me posted on what's going on. What's the average square footage? What are landlords offering for tenant fit out dollars? Um, who's in the market that's looking, who's downsizing, what are the terms that people are getting. So again, having that trusted broker is really, really helpful to me on the real estate side. Yeah, that's cool here. I don't really know a whole lot of uh, about how the real estate side works. So it's definitely cool to at least get a little bit of understanding. There's, I, heard. Um, I don't know if you guys have Professor Cristiano anymore. He used to be at Wentworth. Um, so he was part of the B. EU program and I took a real estate class over there so that I could really understand the terms and understand what things in the lease meant like what is the difference between triple net and double net or all in and things like that because I didn't the real estate terms people will throw them around and you're sort of sitting there going I, I don't know what that means what does three ends mean I don't know what that means and, and what is that is that good for me or bad for me and so I took that class. I also last year took the CFM exam. So I became a certified facilities manager and real estate is a competency of the CFM. So that also actually formalized some of the things I had learned over the years um, from executing transactions and starting to really understand what a lot of that terminology was and also things to look out for going forward. So there's definitely, if you can become familiar with the terms and you understand the concepts behind sale lease facts and REITs and things like that, which are different, you know, real estate deals and way that you can monetize your assets, it will help you in your real estate and facilities career. That's one thing that I wanted to ask about too. I saw on your LinkedIn that you're a CFM and also that you have your Massachusetts construction supervisor's license. Um, so I was just curious how you went about getting that, because I know that's something that I'm interested in. And do you actually um, find it to be useful? Because that's another topic we're looking to explore on a different um, episode. We kind of wanted to dive into like different certifications, what's worth it, what's not. At the time I got my CSL, um, I was doing a lot more construction management that I'm doing right now. And so the CSL is obviously it's a state licensure. And it's really focused on the building codes and understanding the building codes, which I think is incredibly important if you're a construction manager. So you have to know all the life safety codes, the egress codes, the energy code, things like that. Um, I took a prep class and then I sat for the exam and, um, you know, it's a proctored exam. You go somewhere and take it on the computer or you did that. I don't know what you do now. And um, I, I, I felt very confident on the construction site. It was still fairly early in my career when I obtained it. And I felt confident on the construction site because I understood what I should be looking for in order to make sure that the project is safe and that it's being built correctly. Um, so the CSL, I don't currently hold a CSL, but um, I may pursue it again at some point, depending where my career takes me. But the knowledge of how to go find something in the code 
was one of the best lessons I learned in the CSL class. So you can just know where to go to find something and how to interact with building inspectors and other code officials. Um, so that's super helpful. Last year I went for the CFM. So it's, it's been a while since I was in school and I really felt like I needed to sort of hone my skills a little bit and explore some new areas and take the years of experience that I have and codify them a little bit. So I decided if I, you know, I was trying to decide, am I going to go for a master's? Do I want to go for the CSL? Do I want to become lead certified? What do I want to do? And I settled on the CFM because it was an area that I actually didn't have a lot of formal education in. I was an interior design major at Wentworth Facilities, was a, a infancy program at the time. So I didn't graduate with a facilities degree. And I started IFMA, um, which is the International Facilities Management Association, offers a free prep class for local members. And it's a study hall and it was amazing. Um, Chris Gilman is the gentleman who runs it. And he totally prepped us for, a for what we needed. The exam was hard, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> um, it took me about 12 weeks of studying to get ready for it. And then I took the exam and thankfully passed. Um, and as I said earlier with real estate, it really did solidify the concepts that I had heard of, but didn't have a lot of expertise in. And I feel far more prepared as a facilities manager now that I know about things that I don't necessarily deal with every day, like stormwater runoff or um, different competencies that they have in the leadership areas. And, you know, just, I mean, not all, every facilities manager works on something different. So if you're in an office building or you're in a hospital or you're in a manufacturing facility, your type of facilities management is unique, but I think the CFM prepares you to handle all of those. So that was my, what I decided to do last year and, and got it done and feel pretty good about it. There is some continuing education you have to do um, to keep that up. It's a three-year renewal. So in two more years, I'll be renewing it. And now I'm sort of trying to figure out what I want to do next. There's a new credentialing called Well AP, um, which is sort of a tie between lead and fit and you know sort of it's about employee wellness as much as buildings wellness so I'm investigating that I continue to just try and think about do I want to do a PMP do I want to do a master's degree and in some ways it's about finding out what's the best bang for your buck because you're at my at my point in life I'm paying for this stuff myself and so where am I going to find the best return on investment when it comes to salary what's the most valuable credential to an employer and I think that plays into it when you're trying to decide which one of these credentials you should go for. I'm glad you mentioned that IFMA class. I'm a member of IFMA um, as a student. I think the student membership is either 25 or 35. Um, so any students listening, you should be a member of IFMA. But I just joined maybe like at the beginning of this year. And I've only really gone to their like networking events so far, but I'm glad to hear that you did that training because that's one of the things that as a member you get as a benefit. I'm not sure if they're doing it now because of COVID, but I'll have to look into that. Yep, they are. Um, I think there's a session that started in January, so it's probably almost done and they probably won't do another one until the spring. There's usually one in the fall and one in the winter. Um, there's also a credential called the FPM which is for facilities management professionals who have less than five years experience. So it's a, a really good credential to get when you're like one or two years out from graduation. And so you can, um, it's, it's sort of the step before the CFM. So that's another great credential after you've graduated to add that IFMA administers. And I really can't say enough good things about all of the professional organizations in the Boston area. 
So I find, particularly during the pandemic, IFMA, PwC, which is Professional Women in Construction, um, Cornet, which is Corporate Real Estate um, Executives, all of those groups have been invaluable to me. And they've run so many sessions and workshops and networking and all kinds of great stuff, um, all virtually now. But they each have different continuing education classes. They have different certifications. Um, Cornet on the real estate side offers a number of credentials um, to help you, you know, show what you know for the real estate transactions and things like that. So I, and they also have student memberships. And if anyone wants to attend any of our events and you're not a member, just reach out to me. We usually have um, complimentary event tickets for students and things like that. So we're happy to share those. We love to get everyone in sort of knowledgeable and introduce you to the group and the Boston real estate and facilities market is a, is like a family. We all know each other. <laughs> so uh, we try and help each other along the way. I really liked hearing the versatility aspect like that incentive of the certifications to make you really well-rounded and you know like whatever specific part of construction or facilities management you're doing. It's just it's, it, it is very encouraging to hear that there's always something you can do to better yourself something there's always something because I, I know personally speaking, at least, uh, I know a bunch of my friends are like Zach and Chase and a bunch of people in the program. Uh, they, there's, we're here for a reason. Like there's, we're not going to get a job and most of us aren't going to get a job and just stop. And we're, it, so it's good to hear that there's always that extra step you can take. And things change, you know, what they were teaching 20 years ago when I graduated is not the same facilities methodology that they're teaching now. And certainly facilities are different. So whether it be the HVAC systems now, or it's how we treat lead, or it's how our employees are going to respond post pandemic, those things are new and they haven't been written to the textbooks. One of the things I like about facilities is that it's sort of agile and it changes with the times you'll find people who get into facilities often come at it from a variety of backgrounds. So there's those of us who go to school for construction or facilities or interiors or whatever it is, but there's an equal number of us who come into this profession from other things, whether it's law enforcement or the military or the administrative side. I know a number of people who worked as administrative assistants and then rose up and became facilities management. So as long as you're good at coordination and you're good under pressure, whether it's a job in construction management or it's in facilities or it's in real estate, you're going to do well in it. Talking about the uh, HVAC systems, I was an apprentice for a couple of years and this past summer I worked in the office for a HVAC contractor. Have you looked into installing any of those UV lamps or the ionization modules in the ductwork or changing your filter setups uh, for bringing people back into the office? So we did move ahead with installing MERV 13 filters in our facilities, um, which have a proven track record for helping to trap the COVID um, germs, I guess you call them, the virus particles. Um, so we have installed MERV 13s, which work with the rooftop units and the HVAC systems that we have in place. I'm continuing to do research on whether UV filters, air purifiers, um, or UV lights, anything like that. I, there seems to be a lot of mixed information about how effective those things are. So I don't yet know what our strategy will be about which technology we might choose to go forward with. Did you have a hard time getting your hands on these filters? When I was working over the summer, I was trying to buy 
like literally truckloads worth of these filters for some of our bigger uh, customers in Boston. Like Harvard University was one of the big ones where I was pretty much tasked with trying to get my hands on, you know, an entire truckload of these filters. And even when you're trying to buy them in such high volume of hundreds and hundreds of filters, we were at least back in August and July, I was running through the issue where the um, company was pretty much telling us, sorry, but we don't even have the material to make them. So you can try and find them somewhere else, but you probably won't. So I'm just curious how hard of a time you had finding those. Yeah, it was really hard. Um, it reminded me of trying to buy masks in the spring because that was one of the things that as a facilities manager, I needed to buy in the spring. And we work with uh, major facilities uh, so supply vendor for the masks and stuff. And I can remember in the spring, I paid for uh, 4,000 masks um, because that was the minimum order you could put in. And they were we bought them directly from the vendor who was buying them from us plant in China and all this other stuff. And it still took them eight weeks to get to us or something like that. The filters were similar. Once we made the decision, which I think was in June to install the MERV filters, we didn't actually see them until November. So our vendor was telling us the same thing. Like there's just nobody selling them. They don't exist. The materials aren't out there, uh, but they started trickling in. I think we got our first shipment at the beginning of November. And we kept joking because the vendor kept telling us three more weeks, three more weeks. And during my weekly call with the team, I'd ask my facilities manager for an update and he'd go, oh, three more weeks, three more weeks. So it became like a joke for us that three more weeks. But we did actually get them end of November, beginning of December. And now we've got them installed in probably about 80% of our building um, is complete at this point. We don't have, our building is not occupied. So we're not putting in any OT or anything to get them installed. The team works on it every day. Um, they did the areas that are occupied first and now they're moving on to some of the unoccupied areas. But getting those filters has definitely been a challenge and they were more expensive than we've ever paid for those filters. I saw a truck from one of the companies that I used to deal with on Huntington Ave the other day when I was on campus. And I said to myself, man, I hope they have security because if only people knew what was in the back of that truck, you know, what people would be willing to do for it. So it's yep. kind of funny what the world has come to. Yeah, the things that we never had an issue getting before, right? Hand sanitizer, masks, HVAC filters. Um, those things are all in short supply. Even now, we still have a little trouble getting some of our building supplies. So the good news is hand soap and paper towels were never an issue. So we like to remind folks that even if hand sanitizer wasn't available, our sinks were working and our soap was available. So sometimes you have to, as, as facilities professionals, sometimes you have to talk people off the ledge and remind them that, you know, don't panic. You can still wash your hands. Even if we don't have Purell, you can go in the bathroom and wash your hands and you know, people forget about that sometimes they get so caught up in the moment. You mentioned you had an office in Waltham. Where is it? So our main office is at 860 Winter Street, which is an office park um, off of 128. So, and we also have a printing facility that's on the other side of Waltham, um, closer to the Belmont line. So our headquarters are at 860 Winter Street. Yeah, it's all, it's oh. a very nice setting and we have a lot of wildlife. Um, another aspect of facilities, what do you do when a deer gets in your lobby? Um, that happened to one of our neighboring buildings. We, wildlife is a real issue. We've had coyotes, we have swans, we have deer, we have we had a guy hunting on our property, right? So it all comes down to the facilities management team to deal with this and call the police and say someone's hunting on our property. <laughs> so you actually at one point had a deer inside your lobby? We did not, but one of our neighboring buildings. Oh boy. Yes. 
yeah we've had um we had a bird i can't remember if it was a canadian goose or a turkey something and it kept pecking at its reflection we have mirrored glass on the front of our building and so we had to call animal control because we were like what's this is just like banging banging <laughs> banging and you can't those are all protected animals so you can't do anything with it so you have to call animal control and they do their thing and try and relocate them and we were sort of worried it was going to break its neck or something you know it was being rather aggressive it thought it was attacking itself or attacking another bird so yeah it's definitely been uh a little weird <laughs> at times never a dull moment no These are when the you're in that facilities, they don't teach you in school no i will tell you when you're in facilities in a role like mine you really wear a million hats i mean i've been involved with um, bringing in an employee who was injured overseas home um, so we had to coordinate an air ambulance for them we have had the united states attorney general spoke at our building so i worked with the secret service to try and coordinate security for her, which is pretty cool. Um, and we've just, you know, we've hosted a lot of high profile events. We've had, and facilities you deal with security, you also deal with threats to your building and to your people. Suspicious packages can show up. Um, someone generously sent us uh, one of those rain maker walking sticks. So when you turn it upside down, it sounds like the rain. It also sounds like a pipe bomb when it's in a box. So when that shows up in your mailroom, <laughs> you need to call the police because you don't know what it is. Um, it's in a, and so then, you know, you open it up and there's a card from someone saying, hey, I found this on my trip last year to Ecuador. And I, it reminded me of the garden in your building. So I thought I'd send it to you. And then you feel terrible that you had to call the cops and tell them you thought you had a bomb. So the stuff that you deal with in facilities is unpredictable, but you got to roll with it and you got to keep your cool and you'll never be bored. I mean, it's something different every day. That's awesome to hear. That's really my, awesome. To hear. My dad is a private investigator and he's done a couple of security jobs with places like yours where, you know, the company needs security for one reason or another and they end up hiring him and, or background checks. So it's pretty interesting to hear from your perspective. Yeah, and we have, we have done that as well. Um, people that have made threats against the organization or employees and things like that. We've used PIs, we've used international. We've had some VIPs that we've had to protect overseas. Um, you know, whenever you have a, a public company that's branded and you have employees whose names are in the public, you do have to be mindful of what the security implications of that are and be prepared to have resources to call to protect those people if they're traveling or at their homes and things like that. So you definitely, again, it keeps you on your toes, you know, it's not, or, or you're doing a construction job. I did a project last year or two years ago now and a steel rod that was being installed, penetrated the roof and then penetrated the ceiling of the lobby and was suspended over our lobby. And if it had fallen, it would have impaled someone and probably killed them. So the construction management side can be as exciting as anything else. Um, I always say the construction part is the piece I love the most. Um, I love at the end of the day, stepping back and saying, oh my gosh, I made that happen. But there's challenges, no construction project ever goes exactly the way that you think it's going to go so being able to roll with the punches is critical uh, so you've you've you kind of you put your foot in everything or everything that we're learning at least so like that's that's really cool to hear yeah it's great there's been crazy stuff i worked on a project where we the contractor sent a load of debris off to the landfill or the recycling center and it tested positive for radioactivity 
And so that meant the building was contaminated and we had no idea, but apparently years ago, it had been on either a Harvard or an MIT lab and they must've been doing work there. So the floor or the drywall or something have these radioactive traces left in it. How do you deal with that, right? You're the construction manager. Now all of a sudden, you know, you've got a radioactive building. How does that impact your plan and your schedule? Um, asbestos pops up a lot if you're working in older buildings. Um, even if you think the building has been cleared of asbestos, you still have to do testing in most cases and something will come up hot on a project I did a couple of years ago. It was the window caulking. I never knew window caulking could even have asbestos, but ours did. So it had to be abated. So that delayed us by another month as we had that taken care of. I think with some of these crazy things, it also shows you how powerful your network can be when you, you know, you come up and say, uh, so I have radioactive drywall. Does anyone know anyone that can take care of this? You know, sometimes it's good to know people from all these different places. Yeah. And that's where your professional network, whether it's your Wentworth friends or whether it's the people that you meet in IFMA or Cornet or wherever, um, LinkedIn, all of that helps you without a doubt. And I always say this, but there's nothing better than walking into a meeting and somehow it comes up that you went to Wentworth and then other people are like, oh yeah, I went to Wentworth. You instantly feel like, oh, all right, this project team is going to be awesome because there's so many Wentworth people on the team. I can trust them. They're going to get it done. <laughs> the Wentworth network is strong, particularly in the Boston area uh, within the facilities and the construction management world. So I feel like we all have a little bit of a leg up because we have the alumni network working for us. Thank you so much, Gretchen, for coming on the show. Um, I really enjoyed listening to your experience at Wentworth and in the facilities management and construction management world. And if you made it this far in this episode, thank you so much. And we would love to hear your feedback. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk to us. It was, uh, yeah, thank you so it was, much. It was really eye-opening. It was awesome. Thanks for taking the time to check out our podcast. The Wentworth Construction Management Club is part of Wentworth Institute of Technology, a university in Boston, Massachusetts. We are always looking for new guests. If you are interested in coming on the show, please email us at cmclub at wit.edu. If you are interested in purchasing a 30 or 60 second ad to be broadcast during our show, please email cmclub at wit.edu with your name, contact information, and a description of what you would like to promote. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Just search for WITCM Club. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the CM Club podcast.